Father, we thank you that we can come together and we can worship you. Uh, We're very mindful of the fact that we need you more than anything else uh, to be our teacher, our encourager, our convictor, uh, just as Jesus, you are our Savior. Uh, Would you speak to us now? We pray for anybody uh, this morning, God, who is experiencing uh, just um, a sense of loneliness, a sense of lostness, maybe even sitting here wondering why they're here. Uh, We pray, God, that they would hear from you this morning and that above all things, they would hear that you love them. Uh, Help us, God, to consider uh, the text that we look at this morning and have hearts and minds wide open. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 We're studying a rather unusual book of the Bible. It's a book of Revelation. It's the very last book of the New Testament. It's a book that can be difficult to interpret. Uh, can be hard to understand in places. Consequently, commentators over the centuries have come up with some pretty interesting, pretty crazy ideas. Uh, when you look at some of their interpretations, they are often contradictory, uh, to me at least, uh, unconvincing oftentimes, uh, and somewhat unbelievable. Uh, I had a wise, very wise theology professor way back when I went to seminary, said this in our class. He said, uh, he was telling us to be careful about preaching near the edge of your knowledge uh, because you're bound to fall off someday, he said. And it seems to me that some of the commentators that I've read around some of the texts there in the book of Revelation have kind of fallen off the edge a little bit. Uh, I'll tell you the truth, though. It doesn't bother me to admit to you that I have great respect for the mysteries and the wonders of this book of the Bible. As most of you know, the contents of this book come, of course, from Jesus through the pen of the Apostle John, uh, primarily through visions that came his way. Many of these visions are they're full of signs, they're full of symbols, there's some interesting creatures that we're going to encounter, there's also cataclysmic events, and these things can make for exciting reading, but sometimes difficult interpretation or you know, application, how does this apply to my life kinds of things. Uh, you need to know, if you don't already, though, that portions of the book of Revelation are pretty straightforward. They're not all those signs and symbols and creatures and so. Uh, and so these portions of the book, <coughs> excuse me, are uh, easily interpreted and they're more easily applied to ourselves and to our circumstances. And for the next couple of weeks, we're actually entering into a section like that. It's chapter two and chapter three of the book of Revelation. Uh, and the thing that makes these chapters so interesting is they contain letters from Jesus to seven specific churches that were in Asia at this time. Jesus expected John to write down what he saw and the things that he heard and to deliver these letters to these seven churches. Now, imagine what it would have been like for these churches to receive a letter specifically to them from Jesus. Imagine how we would feel if Jesus authored a personal letter to Deer Creek Church. Uh, If I announced that next week we would gather here and we would read together a letter to us from Jesus. Boy, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, We might even be a little nervous. I tell you, I would. I would be nervous. I would be. You know, what is Jesus going to say? Will he be pleased with us? Uh, Will he be disappointed with us? Will there be things he wants to see change here in us and among us? Uh, One thing is certain, I bet we would all be here for the reading of that letter. I bet we would. We'd want to hear Uh, Well, these seven Asian churches actually received kind of a a state of the church address or report from Jesus himself. 
And we're going to study these letters or these reports for the next few weeks. Uh, we'll be seeking to understand them and try to apply them here in our church and in our lives. And the first letter we're going to look at is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, of course, was uh, a key individual in planting and starting this church there in Ephesus. And uh, John's, that was, pro well, Paul probably started that church in the early 50s A.D., um, and then later on, as you know, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. That was some years later, of course, after that church had started. John's visions that we're looking at, this portion of the book that, that we're looking at in the book of Revelation, occurred probably in the early 90s A.D. And what that means is this church in Ephesus, by the time it's receiving this letter from Jesus, uh, is, a, is about 40, maybe as old as 50 years old. Um, so a little bit older than Deer Creek Church. Deer Creek is about 33 years old. So we want to read now. We want to dive in and, and understand and read this text. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and this is what we read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These are the words of God. That's an interesting letter, isn't it? There's a lot of things going on, different layers. Uh, in that letter, there's some bad news. There's some good news. Uh, the good news is that God first commends this church for several things. Uh, the first one he mentions is their works. In other words, uh, their works of service one to another, their works of service in the community, uh, their teaching, their preaching, their caring for each other. Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, I commend you for being an active fellowship. You're not a dead or a dull church. Uh, there's a lot of ministry going on, many things that you were doing. You're not a church that just gathers for an hour on Sunday, then poof, disappears, you know, for a week. You're a church that's serving you're a church that's toiling. You're a church that's ministering in my name, Jesus says. And he commends them for this work. And their work has not been easy. In fact, the very next phrase that we read, he emphasizes this. He says, I know your works. And then there's a pause and he says, your toil. Or in other, in other words, your hard work. Uh, the Greek word there carries with it the idea of intense labor, almost to the point of exhaustion. Uh, these folks were being diligent. Uh, Jesus is commending them for their, their zealousness and their intensity of labor. Uh, next, he notes their patient endurance, or some of your versions would say perseverance. And uh, the point is their efforts are not occasional. Uh, their efforts are not sporadic. They're not doing these things only when it's convenient. 
Only when it's easy for them. They are working and toiling with patient endurance. Uh, Like the other churches mentioned here in the book of Revelation, uh, all of them are contending for the faith. Every church that Jesus writes to, all seven, they're contending for the faith in the cities where they exist. They're uh, experiencing various kinds, different kinds of hardship in each of these cities, but all of them are also patiently enduring. Like the other churches mentioned here in, in John's revelation, uh, uh, he, John actually addresses them in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. They're all experiencing tribulation. And the kingdom, he says, they're all living out of the reality that they're kingdom citizens. That means they live in two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this earth, but also the kingdom of heaven. And then John adds, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So you see, this patient endurance that we acquire from trusting Jesus was something all of these churches shared in common with the Apostle John. John, you remember, was patiently enduring his exile, his banishment to this island 40 miles off the coast of Turkey uh, called Patmos. And the Ephesians who followed Jesus were also patiently enduring a culture that was hostile to their message. You know, the message of the church at Ephesus was like the message of these other uh, churches that existed. And uh, their message was that Jesus is king, not Caesar. You think that's going to get them in trouble? You bet it did. Uh, Their message was that Jesus was the God man. He He was both and many if not most people, disagreed with that message. Their message was that Jesus had died for the sins of his people. And a lot of people disagreed with that message. Sins? What sins? You know, Their message was that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. And their message was that, that uh, Jesus had come back from the dead and would return back to them to the city, to the city of Ephesus. And all of these, this, these aspects of their message offended and contradicted many of their cultic and economic structures there in that city, the city of Ephesus. But these Ephesian followers stood strong. These Ephesian followers were bearing up patiently. Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus is delighted with them. Uh, One of the works that Jesus mentioned specifically, kind of interesting, is how they could not bear with those who were evil. Jesus says they tested those who call themselves apostle and are not and found them to be false. Uh, Jesus is pleased that uh, these followers had the courage, had the wisdom, had the knowledge to test the teaching of these teachers who were coming into the church and saying, Jesus has sent us, we are his apostles. Well, this church examined their lives, examined their behavior, and examined their teaching and decided that their behavior was evil and their teaching was false. This church is exercising discipline. This is a good thing. This church is doing exactly what a church is always supposed to do. This is why the seven churches are called in the book of Revelation on more than one occasion. They're called a lampstand, the golden lampstand. There are seven of these lampstands and Jesus is in the midst of them, you recall. Well, what is it that goes on a lampstand? A lamp. Very good. This is a a above average intelligence church. (laughs) And what does a lamp do? Well, it gives light, right? 
You can be in a dark place, but it's not dark any longer when there's a lamp in there. Churches have the light of Jesus. Churches witness to the light of Jesus. Jesus, when he was on this planet walking, uh, walking around, he made the statement that he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Well, this church here in Ephesus had tested the teaching of these individuals who had come to them, and they had compared it with God's truth, Old Testament scriptures. And they were comparing it with certain apostolic writings that were circulating to the various churches. The Gospels, for example, letters like the letter Paul wrote to Ephesus, or to Philippi, or to Colossae. These letters were circulating, and the teaching of these so-called apostles was found to be false. And we don't know exactly in what way uh, did they deny the true identity of Jesus. To be honest with you, that's where a lot of false teaching, most false teaching begins, denying the true identity of Jesus. Uh, did they deny the Trinity? Well, that wouldn't be surprising. Uh, were they teaching early Gnostic ideas? Maybe you've heard that term before, Gnosticism. This was a, a, grow, a teaching that grew in popularity uh, in the early second century. And so it was, a, it was bubbling up at about this time. And uh, Gnostics believed that the material world, this world, the world we live in, it's evil, right? Not a good thing. And it was ruled by a lesser God. And they believed that lesser God that ruled the material world is the God of the Old Testament. This is what Christian Gnostics believed. Uh, they believed that that God was different than the God of the New Testament. And Jesus was, in fact, an emissary sent by the God of the New Testament to give us some secret gnosis, some secret knowledge that would set our human spirits free. It's actually very close to some teaching today that has been labeled like New Age kinds of thoughts, spiritualism, that type of thing. And uh, these ideas were becoming popular at about this time. Perhaps these self-styled apostles were Gnostics. We don't know for sure. But the Ephesian church and their leaders had done their job. They had maintained orthodoxy. They had guarded the truth. They had rejected false teaching and false doctrine for Jesus' namesake and not grown weary. That deserves a big amen. Amen. Good job. And of course, this is a never, ever ending battle. The church is never done proclaiming the truth. The church is never done guarding the truth. The church is never done identifying falsehood. And this is because every culture, every age opposes the truth about Jesus. The truth that he is God. The truth that he is king. The truth that he is Savior or that we even need a Savior. The fact that he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. Uh, cultures have always, always, always opposed these teachings of Christianity. Our culture, once upon a time too, the application of the working out of this uh, with regards to the culture here in North America, you know, our culture once upon a time said slavery is a good thing. Slavery is an okay thing. There were Christians saying this. Uh, to which, if you've read the New Testament and you know much about it, you know that that actually is not true. Uh, Jesus would not say slavery's okay. No, no, slavery is not okay, never was okay. Even if you read New Testament epistles, you understand that, that in a very subversive manner, the New Testament speaks against the practice of slavery. 
Uh, there are other things too. I mean, cultures are all the time saying things that are just simply not true and embracing ideas and values that are just not true. Gender discrimination. Uh, our culture in the past, not too distant past, has said, well, here's a job. If a man does it, we'll pay him this amount. If a woman does it, we'll pay her this amount. Well, Jesus would say, no, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not good. You understand? Today, our culture declares that taking the lives of unborn babies is okay. We're told that unborn babies are not human beings. They're fetuses. They're just tissue. And so it's okay to dispose of that tissue if that tissue gets in the way of other things. And Jesus would say, no, 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 that is not okay. Jesus wants us to protect and to love these babies, to protect and serve the women who find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy, or to love on those women who found themselves grieving because they've actually had the experience of an abortion. Jesus wants the church, us, to find ways to love on and care for these women and these babies in these very difficult situations. But, but that, you know, we could go off on that, but that's not exactly my point. My point is this, cultures have always been saying and doing stupid, evil, hurtful, destructive things. What's new? Cultures have always been doing these kinds of things and trying to get the church to go along as long as the church has existed. And the church must always test the beliefs and test the teachings and test the doctrines that are popular in any given culture. And you must test them with the word of God, not your feelings or my feelings. And when these things are wrong, when they contradict the teaching of God's word, there has, the church has to have the courage and the wisdom to say, no, no, that is not right. That is not what Jesus taught. That is not what Jesus wants to do. That is false. This is called maintaining orthodoxy. And friends, Jesus' identity, that he is the God-man, that all authority belongs to Jesus. Uh, the idea that Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, his word, Old Testament and New Testament truth, his return, all these things, understand, they get challenged in every culture and in every age. And the church must confess and uphold Jesus' unchanging truth. That's what orthodoxy is. And if a church doesn't uh, teach the truth, maintain the truth that way, truth will disappear in a particular culture. Because you understand in a secular culture, the truth is always changing and always evolving to suit uh, the tastes and the particular interests and desires of the people who are most powerful. This is the way cultures work now. It's the way cultures have always worked. So Jesus commends these Ephesians for contending with false teachers and enduring patiently and bearing up for his namesake. But it appears this church was not only battling false prophets, they were, they were also battling a group that are called the Nicolaitans here. We read this. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a very strong statement, by the way. In fact, you can scour the Bible from cover to cover. And one of the things you'll find is there are almost no indication, no sayings that God hates this group of people. or God. That what God hates are things like lying. God hates robbery. Uh, God hates 
things like uh, wrong is one thing in the Psalms. We're told God hates the wrongs that are perpetrated on other people. Uh, God hates evil. That statement is made also in the Psalms. Here what we read is not that God hates the Nicolaitans. What he hates is their work. It says he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. And almost certainly that's because whatever they taught or whatever they practiced, it was evil. It did a lot of harm. It resulted in divided hearts and mixed allegiances and compromised faith and spiritual destruction. So yes, Jesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Now the truth is we don't know a lot about this group, but many suspect that they advocated a form of Christian idolatry, uh, Christian compromise. They taught you can both follow Jesus and, you know, you can also give lip service to other gods, thus eliminating the tension that existed between uh, those Christ followers there in Ephesus and those other individuals, the larger part of the population, who worshipped pagan gods. This would be like saying, you know, you, you can follow Jesus and you can get along with the culture all at the same time. Uh, This is likely what the Nicolaitans were advocating, this kind of thing. This group is mentioned again a little later when Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum. And uh, there uh, Jesus seems to associate them with another group. And this group was practicing eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And uh, also practicing sexual immorality as a part of pagan temple worship. And so this, this group of Nicolaitans, if they were doing these practices, if this association is correct, it seems that the Nicolaitans were probably saying stuff again, kind of like, hey, you can follow Jesus and you can engage in pagan temple worship. You can eat a little meat offered to idols. You can have a little sex with the local temple priests or priestesses. After all, we're free in Christ, right? I mean, this fleshly stuff doesn't matter. It's just the spiritual There's one New Testament scholar, uh, G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Revelation, he points out that uh, Ephesus was immersed in idol worship of two kinds. Uh, It was just rampant in the city. First, there was a huge temple to Artemis there in the city. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. So if you wanted to have children, uh, or if you wanted your cattle to bear young, or if you wanted your crops to bear fruit, you made a sacrifice in the temple of Artemis in the hopes that she would grant fertility. Understand, everybody does this. Everybody's been doing this for decades and decades and decades. And while you were there, you might as well also take advantage of these literally thousands of priests and priestesses who were available for cultic sex. They were temple prostitutes. And this idolatrous cult was very economically important to the city of Ephesus. You can read all about this, in fact, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 19. Uh, As more and more people there in Ephesus started following Jesus, it began to affect the sale of idol shrines. And the folks in Ephesus who made those idol shrines became quite upset and rioted uh, against Paul and Christians there in Ephesus. In other words, what you have going on are two kingdoms in conflict kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom of this world, right? Now, in addition, the city of Ephesus was also the possessor of two temples dedicated to emperor worship, the worship of Caesar. And this cult, too, played a a big role in the life and the commerce and the politics of the city of Ephesus. So again, Nicolaitans were likely saying kind of a, 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 a mantra 
you know, uh, singing a tune that we've heard before. Uh, it's kind of like, what's all the fuss? You know, follow Jesus and offer sacrifices at the temple. You don't have to be that different. Follow Jesus, visit the temple prostitutes. Not a big deal. Follow Jesus, light a candle to Caesar. It isn't going to matter. In fact, do this and you won't be persecuted. Do this and people won't hate you. Do this and they won't accuse you of this or that or the other. Do this and you'll be just like everybody else. Things will be copacetic. We'll get along fine. But the Ephesians were not fooled. They were working They were toiling, they were patiently enduring, they were confronting evil, they were discerning false teachers, they were not growing weary, they were standing against deceptive and destructive cults. The Ephesian church leaders were fighting for orthodoxy, they were fighting for sound doctrine, they were fighting for good practice. This is all good stuff, friends. It's what a group of Jesus followers must do. And, of course, these Jesus followers are commended for it. All good news. But in verse 4, Jesus raises a very serious problem and concern. You could say it's a fatal flaw that he observes in this church. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I think Jesus is saying to this church somewhere over the years, you abandoned that enthusiastic love for me that should be spilling over into your love for others and empowering your witness and empowering your mission and empowering your interactions and your relationships with others. Their focus had been on maintaining the inward purity of the church and Jesus certainly commends them for that. But a genuine love for the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus actually did should spill over into expressions of love for people outside the church. Chief of which is, of course, our witness. Our sharing what we know to be true about Jesus with folks who don't know those things. Uh, One New Testament scholar says this, he says, they had completely forsaken their first fine flush of enthusiastic love for the gospel. They had yielded to the temptation ever present to Christians to put all their emphasis on sound teaching. In the process, they lost love without which all else is nothing. I think he's right. Jesus reveals in this passage that he is every bit as concerned about the heart of the church as he is about the teaching and the doctrine of his church. In fact, he's letting them know the two are actually utterly inseparable. True doctrine, orthodoxy, when rightly understood, will always produce loving hearts. Hearts filled with love for Jesus that spills over into love for people. At one time, the Ephesians had hearts full of love for God. At one time, they had hearts that were full of worship. At one time, they had hearts overflowing with gratitude. They knew that they had been dead in trespasses and sin once upon a time. These are the words that the Apostle Paul later wrote to the church at Ephesus. They knew that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved them had made them alive together with Christ. By grace, they had been saved. They knew that. They knew they were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
And at one time, following Jesus seemed like them to, just like an adventure, following God's leadings, trusting in God's provision, believing God's word, witnessing God's power. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, something changed. And we don't know exactly what. I speculate there were routines and schedules now. As the church grew and I speculate there were administrative burdens now. I speculate that there was ministry to organize and people to baptize and marry and bury. And there were debates and controversies and, of course, doctrine to defend. But somehow the net effect was that they had abandoned the love they had at first. And Jesus has a deep concern about his followers developing cold hearts. And losing their first love. Friends, here's the thing. Following Jesus is a love-driven life. A person does not follow Jesus for pleasure. At least not for very long. A person does not follow Jesus out of fear. At least not very well. A person does not follow Jesus to derive power. Uh, If they follow Jesus to derive power, it's going to be a very corrupt and useless power. A person doesn't follow Jesus to get a reward, although we will one day shockingly get a reward. A person follows Jesus because Jesus first loves them. John, the apostle, uh, was actually present and heard Jesus speak these words. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Think about this. John heard Jesus say those words. And then John watched Jesus do it for him. The Apostle Paul, uh, you remember the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians, people who followed Jesus. And he was on his way to uh, Damascus to round some Christians up bring them back to Jerusalem, lock them up in jail, maybe even have them put to death. The apostle Paul later wrote to the church at Rome, and this is what he said. He said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Understand, friends, Paul lived that truth. Paul embodied that truth. Jesus was dying on the cross for Paul while Paul was putting Christians to death. So when Paul wrote those words, those are not just good theology words. That's rock bottom life changing truth. It caused Paul to love Gentiles. You know, when sinners like you and me realize what we deserve at the hands of a holy God, we talked about this last week. We do what John did. Remember in, John, or in Revelation chapter 1, John has had this glorious, glorious, incredible vision of Jesus. Jesus in all his glory, all his power, all his splendor. And John says this, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Jesus showed John mercy again. And again, and again. And I'll tell you what, friends, in Jesus, we get exactly, exactly what we don't deserve. And this love forever changed the Apostle John. Later, he was writing a 
a short letter to a group of Christians. And in that letter, he says this, he says, behold, and that really, if you understand the, the, the Greek, the intense um, uh, emphasis placed on this word in the Greek language, he's really saying, behold, <laughs> he's excited. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you're not going to believe this. That's what he's saying. He's saying, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children, sons of God. He just couldn't believe it. He was blown away. And I know this love is what first captured the hearts of the Ephesian followers. Uh, this love is why all of us, in fact, follow and serve and give and worship. There is no purer love. There is no more powerful love. There is no more penetrating love than the love of Jesus. And when we experience his love like that, we swear to ourselves, we will never take God's love for granted. Never, not ever again. And then we do. Again and again and again. God forgive us. I became a follower of Jesus in high school. I was about 17 years old. Man, it took my life, and I mean, it just boom, upside down. I was blown away by the love that Jesus had for me, the forgiveness he gave me. It's because of Jesus' love that I began to study the Bible, read the Bible. I never really cracked the Bible before, so everything in there was pretty much new. In fact, I even got to a point as uh, I came into Easter uh, season, I, it was like, oh, that's what, that's what Easter's about. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Because of Jesus' love, I desperately wanted to know him better. Because of Jesus' love, I started doing the darndest things. I'm 17 years old. I started attending a church. And in that particular church that I was attending, it was a Christian Missionary Alliance church, and it was just a sea of gray. There were like about three of us there under the age of, uh, I don't know, uh, I was under the age of 18. So I was, but, and there was this weird group of people, and they sang this awful music uh, that had great words, had great words. And uh, I started giving money away in that church. I was working in a pharmacy uh, and a drugstore kind of a thing. That was my after-school job. And I started giving money because I came to believe that they were doing really important things. Because of Jesus' love, eventually I went to college, a Christian liberal arts college, because I knew I didn't know enough about Jesus, about his church, even about myself. And uh, it's because of the love of Jesus, I eventually went to seminary. It's because of the love of Jesus, I eventually went into the ministry. And it was because of the love of Jesus, I eventually started this church. Because of Jesus' love, I've persisted in trying to reconcile relationships over the years with people who don't like me very much. And I don't like them either. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what? Jesus does. And he, he wants me to reconcile relationships. Because of Jesus' love, I'm still married, 42 years. And I'm not sure Holly and I would be. We both have opinions. Do you know how this works in a marriage? And our, our opinions conflict, and sometimes we're mean to each other, me probably more than her. But because of Jesus' sacrificial love, you keep coming back to the table, and you keep asking forgiveness, and you keep learning what it looks like to sacrificially love someone. 
And I'll tell you what, because of Jesus' love, we endure hardship. We repent of sin. We share Jesus with others, even when that's terribly awkward. We follow risky leadings. We do crazy things like plant churches and give money away. Here's the deal. We love Jesus entirely and totally because he first loved us. You see, Christianity is a love-driven faith, period. And that being the case, whenever God sees a Christian or a group of Christians in a particular church abandoning their first love, he knows the inevitable demise that is soon to follow. When Christians' hearts grow cold, cold to the love of God, when a follower begins to take Jesus' love for granted, well, the dynamic that has fueled his or her Christian life from start to finish, it's gone. And so worship is less important. Witness is just too hard. Loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor doesn't matter. Reading God's word is boring. Prayer is tedious. And over time, the practice of our faith becomes perfunctory. It becomes mechanical. And there might still be some, you know, occasional activity. We might still look kind of okay on the outside. There's still some labor. There might still be a little work, a little service, some occasional begrudging giving. But let's be honest the life-giving dynamic of it all is missing. And when that happens, friends, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when just one Jesus follower grows cold of heart, let alone when it happens to a whole church. And yet this happens all the time. There's a statistic that's very popular and often quoted. Uh, It's hard to track down its sources, however. So I, I hope it's not true. But the statistic, and I've read it in multiple places, is that every year in North America, five to 6,000 churches close their doors. And that happens when pastors and leaders and staff and members of the church get so busy working for God that they neglect communion with God. And all that that implies, you know, the things that sustain and create and deepen relationship, reading, study, spiritual disciplines, things like that. I had a pastor friend ask me many, many years ago, what is your biggest daily challenge? I thought that's a good question. You know, that's a very thoughtful question. He wanted to know, is it administration? Uh, Is it being a godly spouse? Is it parenting? We had kids living at home at that time. Is it preparing sermons? Is it shepherding people? You know, what is it? What is your biggest daily challenge? And I told him all the things you mentioned. Yeah, those are all challenges. Every single one of those are challenges for me. But my biggest challenge is to manage my life in such a way as to stay in a first love kind of relationship with Jesus. That is my biggest challenge every single day. I desperately do need to live a love-driven Christian life. I desperately need to know Jesus' love for me so that I, in turn, will love him back and love others. That's what makes me want to do the works that Jesus has prepared beforehand for me to do. And so there's a huge question on the table. 
And the question is, well, how do we stay in a first love relationship with Jesus? And Jesus tells us. Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, he says, remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And I think Jesus is saying, recall what it was like when you first put your faith in me. When you first discovered your sin and my forgiveness and how that impacted your life. Remember my love for you. Remember what it was like when we used to really talk and really communicate. Remember what it was like to sense my leading in your life, in the decisions that you make and the directions that you took. To be used by me to mark another person's life with truth and with love. Remember what that's like. Remember from where you have fallen And repent, he says. Repent and do the works you did at first. Decide what activities, what practices, what disciplines keep you close to Jesus. And did that especially early on and reinstate those things in your life. We tell you around here all the time that you need to be in worship. That's one of the keys. Because together we we remind each other of these things. We talk about being in connection with other Christians. You need other believers in your life reminding you of these things and also you reminding them. You need to serve. You know, Jesus has given you spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit has given each and every follower of Jesus certain spiritual gifts to use in serving others. It's one of the key ways we keep love alive. And there are other things, reading the Bible, praying, the use of spiritual disciplines, all things I've mentioned already. What things do you need to reinstate in your life as practices and priorities? The point is, figure out what it will take to restore your first love and then get on with it. Make those practices and those habits non-negotiable. If you don't, There's going to be that inevitable slide into what many have called casual Christianity or perhaps into mechanical ministry or just ritual kinds of religion. Jesus says this is important, friends. It's important because this is what he says. If not, if you don't do this, if you don't repent and do the works you did at first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, he says, unless you repent. Wow. You see, if the church at Ephesus doesn't turn around and rediscover the love they had at first, despite their orthodoxy, despite their work, despite their toil, it's going to kill the church. Jesus is going to remove their lampstand from its place and their light and their witness and their work will be no longer. Jesus is giving them a prophetic challenge. It's the same one he gives us today. Jesus wants more from all of us than just orthodoxy, just correct doctrine, just some work and some toil. Jesus wants our hearts, the love that we had at first, you see. And the key to our future fruitful witness in our personal lives or in our families or in our church is making sure that our doctrine, our truth, drive us to places of deeper love for Jesus. Because it's in that love that we will then have the heart that's like Jesus' heart. So that we love people that Jesus loves and we serve people that Jesus would want us to serve and we live with love 
the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus has for us. That's the key. That's the key to our lampstand staying fully bright, brightly lighted. That's the key to God's full blessing in our lives. That's the key uh, to our ministry here together in this church being something which honors Jesus and impacts each other and others. Maintaining a first love relationship with Jesus. You know, we don't know for sure what happened to the church at Ephesus, at least not in the short, short term. We don't know if the impact of this letter transformed them or not. Unfortunately, we do know in the long term, they never recaptured their first love. And their lampstand was removed. And Jesus challenged them just like he challenges us. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here that means repenting and doing the works they did at first. Loving Jesus the way you did it first. And therefore, too, loving people out of that love for Jesus. Yeah. Loving people in their witness and their work. And you see, if they do this, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we read that and we're like, okay, what is that exactly? What is that? What is Jesus promising there? If you overcome, if you conquer. Well, he's using Old Testament language. Old Testament language comes up all the time in this book. This is Old Testament symbolism. The tree of life has appeared before where? Yeah, the garden, Garden of Eden. That was the tree they, were, uh, they couldn't eat from because they had already eaten from another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And now because they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were now separated from God in their rebellion and in their sin. And the tree of life was something, this is the very reason why God drove them out of the garden. He didn't want them eating of the tree of life in their sinful condition. Understand the tree of life is the promise of God's close, intimate presence with you. To eat of the tree of life is to have life with God. To eat of the tree of life is to have life with Jesus. To eat of the tree of life is abundant life. It's fruitful life. It's purposeful life. It's eternal life. And believe me, you want to eat of the tree of life. We all long to eat of the tree of life, even though that's language that's not familiar to us. Our souls long to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. And again, here's the deal. That is what we'll get to do if we just don't abandon the love we had at first. The first love relationship with Jesus. Now I'll tell you, I fully realize that the responsibility for this starts, of course, with me. And by that, I simply mean I'm convinced that the greatest way that I can serve you people, this church, its staff, and so is to do everything I can to maintain a first love kind of relationship with Jesus. That's more important than delivering spine-tingling messages, which I always do, (laughs) or leading programs or what have you. If I can maintain a first love relationship with Jesus, then what ministry I do will flow out of that relationship and it will honor Jesus and it will accomplish whatever Jesus wants it to accomplish. The same is true of all the men and women who serve and lead in this church, in this ministry. There are so many here who you you have diligent, hardworking, toiling hands of ministry. But let's be sure we're equally as diligent in matters of the heart. Whether you uh, 
serve children or whether you serve students or whether you uh, greet people at the front door or whether it's the worship that you offer in here, whatever you do, if you labor out of anything less than a deep, warm, abiding love for Jesus, you rob the people you serve. And so we'll just end this way. Question. Uh, It's really decision time, I think, when we read a text like this together. It's decision time for every one of us. And I would ask you, is Jesus talking to you? Do you have any first love issues? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? What does repentance look like for you? Vitally important that all of us answer these questions. Are you willing to make the necessary investments to grow and to keep your relationship with Jesus a first love kind of relationship? Vitally important. We want to be a church that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now, we're still in a first love relationship with Jesus and have that so inspire us that it spills out into the way we love each other and the way we love people outside these walls. So my challenge to you is, is Jesus talking to you? Do you have any first love issues? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to talk to? Pray with me. Father God, we, uh, we all of us have first love issues, if we're being honest. All of us uh, on a, any given day find that our love for you has waned. Our heart for you uh, is not what it should be. And so God, every single day we need your mercies and we need your grace. But God, there could be things too in our lives, things we need to change, patterns uh, we need to drop and uh, patterns we need to adopt. There could be things, God, that are out of sync and out of priority. And it's those kinds of things, God, we would ask you to speak to us about. We'd ask you to give us the courage to talk to people who love and care about us. We'd ask you for courage, God, to, to put things in place that would change, to go back to those things we used to do that, that would maintain and enliven the love that we had for Jesus. Help us to identify those things. Help us to embrace them. Help us to follow you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.